Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Hey everyone, what if I told you that regular exercise has the ability to transform your health, even if you subscribe to a not-so-balanced eating plan? No, that doesn't mean you should eat ultra-processed foods for every meal. We still believe in whole foods and a predominantly plant-strong diet at My Buddy Green, and that health begins on one's plate. But I do think today's guest is onto something when she says exercise is way more concrete than nutrition. Exercise is more important than we thought, and I encourage you to keep an open mind when listening to her point of view. Now to the show. Anastasia, welcome. Thank you, Jason. I'm happy to be here. It's great to have you. As I mentioned before we started to hit record, uh, I receive a lot of pitches, but the title of your book, Eat Like a Pig, Run Like a Horse, How Food Fights Hijacked Our Health and the New Science of Exercise, grabbed my attention in a way that others do not. I was definitely intrigued and I started reading and Boy, what a fascinating subject and a powerful personal story. So it's just an honor to have you here. Thank you so much. Yeah, um, I have to say that was, of course, a little intentional. It's a title that's meant to to grab you by the collar. Um, there are maybe some missing words in there because I think if I, if I made it a little bit longer, I'd say, if you eat like a pig, then you better run like a horse. So, so let's start. You, you have an, you have a very unique background. So let's start there and in, in your own personal health journey, which led you to, to write this book. So I, uh, you know, was like pretty much everybody else in their twenties, kind of focusing on twenties stuff, your career and love and so forth. And uh, then, sort of midway through, I had uh, what was basically like a stroke. Uh, one side of my body went numb. I lost strength and I lost balance. And this was kind of right before MRIs were widely available. So I went to the neurologist whose, believe it or not, name was Dr. Grimm. And Dr. Grimm uh, informed me that there were three possibilities. Either uh, what had happened to me was an anomaly, just would never happen again. Uh, that it was a brain tumor and that he would be seeing me shortly um, or that it might be multiple sclerosis. Um, so I did what um, was one one possible response to a severe crisis, which is I ran away. Um, I ran away to South America and I basically kind of started a whole other life, which was a little bit more adventurous. I ended up... Um, founding and running an English language news magazine um, for several years. Uh, and I ended up um, moving from my, my, my first very serious boyfriend from college to another, another boyfriend. Um, so I kind of redid it in all different ways. But then um, fate caught up with me and I had uh, a repeat attack this time it was on the opposite side of my body. And again, I lost um, strength. I was unable to walk. I, I remember signing a check for a freelancer at this point, and my, my uh, signature looked like chicken scratches because I couldn't hold the, the pen. Um, and then uh, that then I was actually able to use uh, one of the very, the, I was living in Quito, and uh, I made an exchange in my newspaper for six months of ads for 
use of their brand new MRI. And I went in and uh, they did an MRI. And uh, at that point, the, the uh, neurologist who had trained in Mexico, he said, oh, you have, there's something you have that we don't see here, but I saw it in um, Mexico City. And it looks like you have multiple sclerosis because you have multiple lesions on your brain. So um, from then in, you know, I kind of was incorporating that information into my life. I did exercise at that point, uh, but I was more of a swimmer uh, and probably wasn't getting as sort of much of a cardio workout as I, as I later did. Um, but sort of fast forward a few more years, I had a few more what are called uh, attacks, flare-ups, exacerbations, whatever language you want to use, um, this time primarily in my legs um, that would just sort of affect sort of my ability to get around for a while. Um, and then in the middle of, I should also add, got married, moved back to the States, a bunch of other stuff, um, started having kids. And then in the middle of my uh, second pregnancy, uh, I was still swimming, and then one day while I was projectile vomiting, um, which sometimes happens when you're pregnant, I I braced myself against the counter next to the toilet and twisted my shoulder so badly that I really screwed up my rotator cuff. I was in terrible pain, and I couldn't swim anymore. Um, and so as soon as I got a little bit more recovery in that, I started. I headed out the door and started to do slow jogging. Um, I kept that up through that pregnancy, after the pregnancy, and kept going. Um, and then I started to notice after several years that my MS flare-ups had stopped. And uh, they, in fact, I never had another one after I started running. So while I didn't immediately sort of say what's going on here over time, and, and over time, I began wonder, you know, what it was, uh, if it was the exercise that was somehow protecting me um, from, you know, progression with my disease, and um, if so, how that worked. So eat like a pig, run like a horse is my journey of discovery about how exercise can uh, protect against all sorts of diseases and conditions. So before we dive into some of the the data and the studies which you reference in the book supporting your theory that exercise is to some degree the ultimate elixir, um, how would you describe your, your your philosophy on nutrition or diet in this period of time? How are you eating? Because everyone everyone listening is asking that question. That is a great great question. And um, so if you my I actually uh, during this time I I, I had become started to become a food writer and I was very interested, I've always been very interested in food. And, um, but I was pretty much like uh, the majority of people, which is I felt, you know, I believe very strongly that um, only food, uh, whole foods were healthy and that processed foods were bad and that I should be cooking everything from scratch. I had kids and I really actually tried to do that. I, one of my very first pieces was this kind of uh, diatribe about um, Annie's mac and cheese uh, on on uh, not on salon, and which received a ton of very irate notes because I was saying that Annie's was the same as basically the same thing as Kraft's. Um, because and that, um, but I was at, at the same time I was very frustrated as a mom because I remember my daughter she just 
even if I made it from scratch, she always preferred the Annie's and, you know, that was kind of a low. Very similar ingredients. It, it wasn't like a, a huge step forward in terms of the ingredients for Annie's, if I remember that label. Yeah. Exactly. There's very little. And, and at that time, I think Annie's was sort of implying that they were organic and they weren't even organic. I think they're, I can't remember, there's some sort of a term they use. So, um, but that, that piece also set me off into sort of a, an interest in industrial food. Um, so these things were happening simultaneously. I became a slow food leader in my region and I was, you know, adv still advocating all this home cooking and, and, you know, I member of a CSA getting my vegetables. I was a member of a meat CSA for a while. Um, and then at the same time, I was starting to write these pieces about industrial food and really getting into the food science behind it. Um, which led me to the topic of my first book, which is how uh, military has influenced the American diet because uh, it invests in the food science research that ends up um, be being incorporated into combat rations. And then that is spread uh, to the industry. So talk about, I think that's so interesting. Can we just pause there for a moment and talk about the military's influence around shelf life and, and, every, and all of the above? Well, as you know, that's the topic of a whole other book, but I'm happy to talk about it. Yeah. Um, so that that was a really interesting journey. Um, it, it literally started with a sandwich, um, which was, as I said, during this period, I was trying to make my kids healthy food. Um, but, at, you know, I was also packing some lunches for school. And one day when I was doing that, I started to actually think about the things I was putting into what I considered my homemade sandwich, you know, bread and cheese and, and this packaged deli meat. Um, and I realized, and mail, and I, and I said, okay, wow, these things actually, you know, they last for a long time in my fridge or in my cupboard. And I wonder how that's happening and really are they that healthy? So I, um, after my daughters went off to school, I started to do research on those three, uh, four different ingredients of the sandwich. And I went deep into the food science. And very weirdly, I found uh, um, at the sort of origin of the extended shelf life for two of the items, um, the bread and the packaged deli meat, deli meat, this reference to this thing called the Natick Soldier System Center, which is actually right near me in Massachusetts, and is the center where they do all the research on, on combat rations. And I was just really I was like, why? what's the military doing in our food? I could not understand it. And that led me to just unravel this whole um, real uh, uh, policy, which is to... Um, to, to either do or fund food science research into, uh, into um, you know, extended shelf life and food safety so that combat rations, which must be able to last for um, up to three years at room temperature <laughs> in their packaging, um, will be safe. And so because the military wants that uh, either for uh, the food industry to be able to sh quickly shift their uh, their uh, production lines into combat rations, if there's ever sort of a big um, global war, they distribute. They just kind of disseminate that, um, you know, free so that it gets out there. And they also work with these uh, uh, big companies to to encourage them to create products based on uh, that technology. 
And so that system has created sort of this throughput of, you know, military-funded food research that then is very quickly incorporated um, into our cupboards. So does this date back to World War II, I'm assuming? It does go back to World War II, yes, because it was so huge and the, and the need was so great to provide uh, so many rations uh, to so many soldiers around the world. Well, I, I, on one hand, you do in the book say that, you know, processed food, uh, you know, m- maybe we've wrongly vilified processed food to, to some degree. But at the same time, before we go there, you do talk about the difference, and I think this is notable, between the EU and America in terms of legally accepted additives. EU is kicking our butt. Yes, they they are much stricter. Um, so, but at the same time, um, I did find you know in in the more recent book and eat like a pig, run like a horse that um, there's really only a small number of additives that are not uh, allowed in the EU that are allowed in the U.S. Um, so, you know, anyway, the kind of the bigger picture was I, I got a very, very close look at processed food, what goes into it, why it's made the way it is. And really kind of the two really key concepts here are, as you mentioned, the, uh, the being shelf stable. So being, being able to last for a long time and, and so it has to be safe, but it also has to be able to to kind of maintain its tastiness, which is something called shelf stability. Um, and so there are ingredients that are there to make it safe, and, and there are also ingredients there to just make sure it's, it's shelf stable. But, it, you know, building off of that, I think we're aligned in that we're, we're cautious around processed food. But at the same time, if we can collectively agree on a working definition of, of what's healthy, you know, in the book, you talk about ranging from Michael Pollan's eat food, not too much, mostly plants, to vegan, keto, keto, paleo, Mediterranean, the list goes on. But in summary, it is a mostly whole foods diet. There's some processed foods there. And if we could establish that as relatively healthy for the average person, I think what I thought was so interesting, the point, what I got from your book was, we should just probably let it go. And that the the missing link here is not in food, it is in exercise. So walk me through that journey while you're exploring all the different diets and and the culture and the ideology and everything that goes along with it and the science. Walk me through that where where you're looking through the literature and you're walking away saying, "I, I don't see it in food here. Yeah, well, so that kind of starts right back there in my um, journey with the military, which is as I as I went through that process, I started to see that a lot of times I think uh, the consumer feels uncomfortable about processed food. Uh, well, let me let me back up. People will basically try and eat whatever they see all around, you know, that's kind of our history. We've like figured out how to eat the craziest things. We eat, you know, um, plant, uh, uh, vegetable, mineral, you know, we figure out all weird ways to process it. And we're always coming up with new ways um, to eat food. So in that sense, the the uh, processed food is really just kind of a step 
further in uh, human evolution of eating. I, th I think what happens is that people become very uncomfortable around the science and technology that goes into that because they don't understand it very well. And so it feels very scary because there may be chemicals or there may be, you know, weird uh, physical processes that are happening and, 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 and they don't, and they're not intuitive. Um, so I think that has created uh, this sense of fear around it because people don't know what's happening. Um, but as I started to look more closely at it, for example, some of these additives, they sound terrible, but what are, and, but some of them are, you know, they're, they're secreted by uh, uh, bacteria in the lab and they, you know, they're weird little thickeners and okay, yeah, it's not, maybe it wasn't something that was used 200 years ago, but um, that concept of, you know, uh, consuming the secretions of, um, you know, microbes is something that is something historic. And in other cases, we've created synthetic alternatives. So I started to become a lot more tolerant of those things based on my feeling of knowledge and understanding of what scientists were doing. Um, so, th so that was one piece of it. Um, and the second piece is there's actually a bridge book between my two books, which is going to be coming out next year. Things like that happen in the publishing world. Um, <laughs> so that uh, and that book is really will show you how I, I moved from this whole thing of, of uh, understanding of processed food in my research on the military to the belief that we needed to pay more attention uh, to physical activity. Uh, and in that, I do examine, and I'm glad you brought this up, um, it, there's a system for classifying all foods so that we better understand which categories of processed foods are maybe only consumed as treats and which ones we can really include in our diets and not worry too much about. Um, and so in going through that, I would, I would basically can say, you know, the things that we have in our cupboards most of the time that we, that, for example, one of my favorite uh, or during when my kids were little, one of their favorite meals was also all from processed food. It was spaghetti sauce, spaghetti, and grated cheese. When you think about those, those are all highly processed foods, but you know, they're fairly healthy. Um, so things like that, frozen dinners, yay, frozen dinners, you know, yay, canned vegetables. There are lots of things that are processed that are um, pretty good for us. So there is one small category which would tend to fall into that uh, classification that people now use of ultra-processed. Um, and yes, that should be consumed in moderation as a treat, as you would any other treat, sweets or alcohol or whatever. And that would, and in general, that kind of food, um, it kind of gets uh, broken down into its, its uh component molecules and really reassembled in a way that it's really hard to, to kind of figure out what it might have been originally. And that's bad for us only in that it's so easy to digest and a, and a very quick way to accumulate calories. So, so what's an example of something ultra processed? You know, like a chips, your candies, you know, pretty much anything that's super naughty that you can think of that you'd like to snack on. That's an ultra processed food. The other thing I'll point out to you within the processed food world, uh, one, I think it happens. We all have processed food, no matter how hardcore we are. And, and I do think where we are today, and there's so many better options out there. Uh, 
across the board. Uh, you mentioned pasta. I have lentil pasta. It's just lentils, lentil flour. It's amazing. Great source of protein. Uh, it, it, it's processed, but if I look at the ingredients, that, that's it. It's just lentils. Uh, there's great sauces. There's there's just better everything. Uh, but, but but with regards to the the, the villains, so to speak, uh, you know, it, in your research, I'm assuming you know, did you you came across studies that supported some generalizations like we should probably avoid too much processed processed sugar refined sugar, excuse me, processed meat, like what, what, what were, you know, if we're looking for this definition of reasonably healthy, uh, let's come back to that. And what are the things we should probably generally avoid before we segue? From uh, Combat Ready Kitchen, I would say uh, go easy on the processed meats. Um, there's definitely some some good signs to show that that in, you know, I think if you're using those regularly, you should maybe be, rethink that. Um, I, there is clearly if you're guzzling soda or juice or fruit juice all day long, that's not good because you're just ingesting tons of calories and there's just whole, there's a bunch of science that shows that, um, you're, it, 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 you're, you don't feel as well. Soda, so no, soda, soda and fruit juice. No. And then I say, yes, eat lots of vegetables. Vegetables are great. There's, you know, so, um, but once you have met your basic nutritional uh, requirements, and this is this is the point of of eat like a pig and like a horse, there's really not much to be gained um, by following any special diet. And by basic nutritional requirements, I mean um, protein, fat, uh, some carbohydrates, maybe better if they're complex carbohydrates, you know, vitamins and minerals. Um, so there's a lot of leeway there. You talk about Ansel Keys, who is a figure who has been widely discussed in our space. Uh, can, you, can you talk about Keys and the, the various food fights we've been having amongst ourselves in, in the wellness world, debating his work? I, w- I would love to. Uh, before I go on to that, I just wanted to finish up um, your question because you wanted to know how I got to the, the physical activity. So then I started. So then I was like, okay, well, if um, if processed food is not that bad, then what's going on? What's account? What, you know, what accounts for this global increase in obesity and the global increase in lifestyle uh, diseases, which are also called uh, non-communicable diseases, and all of a sudden, I started to see, you know, this this emerging body of research on the effects of sedentarism, and then I can look at just simply in, you know, sort of uh, historical records from of of uh, activity patterns in the U.S. government, um, you know, that our our activity level has just slowly been decreasing, while at the same time we're we're just spending more and more time, frankly. Um, what we're doing right now is interacting with screens. Um, So once I started to look at that, then I said, okay, well, maybe it's the lack of of movement, the phys- of physical activity that is a factor here. And so that led me off in this direction. And now on to Ansel Keys. Yes, I just want to close on Keys with food and, move, and go back to exercise because I think it's so interesting. Ansel Keys is a looming 
uh, scientific figure of the 20th century. Um, he, uh, again, appeared in my first book because he he founded the K-ration, which was which was kind of ironically enough, the first snacking or greasing ration because it was like a, like a Slim Jim and a little some crackers and some chocolate. Um, but he was also, uh, in, in, he was a physiologist and he was interested in all other, uh, other sorts of issues to do with the body, to um, fatigue and uh, sleep and altitude. Uh, during the war, he operated a laboratory at the University of Minnesota, um, where he did a very, very famous on con uh, experiment on conscientious objectors, um, where they were essentially used as guinea pigs to see what the effect of um, what he assumed was going to be happening in Europe, which is there are many uh, large uh, populations of people were not getting enough to eat, and he wondered what the impact of starvation would be. So he had these uh, guys um, starve themselves, and one and this was uh, had some very unpleasant effects for them. Um, some of them lifelong, by the way, because they became food obsessed after this experience. Um, but what he did notice was that they had this tremendous uh, drop in their blood cholesterol. So. After the war, and I should say a little piece of this is that um, during World War II, the use of tobacco in cigarette form increased dramatically. It almost doubled. One of the reasons was actually that the uh, the cigarette companies, because they were trying to get people to use cigarettes instead of pipes and so forth that they had used before, um, began to distribute cigarettes with soldiers' rations. Um, so that got up this whole new generation of um, Americans hooked on, on tobacco. After World War II, there was this huge increase, in, this spike in the number of people who are having uh, heart attacks and uh, cardiovascular disease. And so people were wondering why that was and um, speculating about as to the causes and there's research being done on it. And uh, Keyes then said, okay, well, let's see. And sort of, if you starve people and their blood cholesterol drops, and people already had this idea that cholesterol was associated with um, cardiovascular problems, maybe if they have too much cholesterol, then um, that would... It, that will increase their risk. And so he proposed doing a um, an international study comparing different populations to see the impact of, of, of what their what the impact of their diet might be on their health. In order to do this kind of a study, you do like a pilot. And so uh, during the 1950s, uh, Keyes was doing these pilots around the world, and he and it wasn't um, a study that was was funded by any one funder because it was international, and so he looked for a variety of funding sources. And one of them uh, ended up being the tobacco industry. So, what was interesting about that, and it was not a huge amount of money, but what was interesting about that is is what the tobacco industry wanted from Keyes. Uh, what they wanted was for him to show through his population studies that tobacco use was not the important risk factor for cardiovascular disease. And Keyes did in fact do that in that he 
showed by comparing different populations um, he should w- that had variable uh, cholesterol levels and levels of heart disease he speculated that that was caused by these differences in uh, fat in their diet. So he looked at Japanese and he looked um, at Scandinavians and he looked at Mediterraneans and he uh, found overall that the ones who lived in the Mediterranean were the healthiest. What he didn't really include in all of this was that um, there were very variable levels of physical activity among his populations and that some of, for example, and some of those populations um, perhaps had uh, much less access to cars because they were, for example, Italians tended to, um, you know, move around on foot and, and, um, and then there were also variable levels of smoking. So he kind of just focused on um, the diet piece and dropped out those two other pieces. And at the same time, because the smoking um, didn't seem to be at all correlated uh, with heart disease, because, or I should say it was confounded by the diet, the, uh, the tobacco industry was then able to say, well, this famous um, scientist, he looked at the issue of smoking, he found there's really no correlation, that's really diet. And so... Um, I believe, and I was unable to actually find the smoking gun here, but I'm pretty sure that they helped place that um, seminal article in Time magazine, which was in, um, I think, in 1960 or in early 1961, which was where um, Key's research broke through to the public and and really definitively finding that um, high cholesterol in the diet caused uh, cardiovascular disease. And from there, uh, you know, he was very famous, very influential, and other voices really dropped out. There was somebody he had sort of a countervailing um, influence um, in Britain, who was a Scottish epidemiologist who had done research that found that cardiovascular disease was caused by uh, a lack of activity. And the way um, he did this was he looked at uh, the two different kinds of um, double bus employees, you know, the double buses they have in, in, um, in London and so forth. And he found that the drivers who were sitting all day were, um, had a much higher, at higher rates of cardiovascular disease than the conductors who walked up and down the stairs in the aisles and collected tickets all day. But he, Jeremy Morris, it was, it was his name. Um, but those voices really got sort of, Outshouted, let's say, by um, Keys and and his uh, his crew, and then sort of momentum gathered behind that idea, interpretation, and and really the the whole um, you know sort of understanding of 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 cardiology and cardiovascular disease and good nutrition became founded on that rather than anything to do with exercise or smoking. You've also mentioned around the same time, Eisenhower, who was the president, uh, had a heart attack and he ate a lot of red meat, but he was also a chain smoker. Yes. Four packs a day. I mean, so, so, so they, so, and, and it's interesting because the news articles of the time, his cardiologist saying, he, you know, he's got to go on this diet, blah, blah, blah. He doesn't mention the smoking. <laughs> so I, I- I think the bigger point and why I wanted to come back to keys before we fully move on to to exercise is, in my view, 
it's it's an extreme example of many of the issues we have with these nutrition studies where you're really not controlling the group. In my view, it's an extreme example of the, the issue we have with some of these large-scale nutrition studies where you really don't have control of the group. Uh, you know, you ask someone a question, you know, did, did, you, <laughs> did you eat fast food? And the answer is no, but then they went to Jack in the Box. It wasn't McDonald's. Uh, that, that's maybe not the best example, but I'll use it. What else are they doing in their day? Whereas exercise is a little bit more clear here. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the nutrition, first of all, the nutrition studies are sort of an exercise in muddying the waters because a lot of times as people um, may or may not know, they are funded by industry or they're funded by people who have are trying to kind of push a particular agenda. So it, it, it's very difficult to understand. But I think... Um, what what the an interesting thing that uh, you're bringing up is who or what are these studies done on, and um, one of the the most common subjects are uh, mice and rats in the laboratory, and that, as you know, is um, the subject of a whole chapter in my book <laughs> because one of the most fascinating things about uh, laboratory research is it's done on subjects that are pretty much uh, held captive and, and not allowed to move because laboratory rodents are kept in these very tiny boxes called um, shoebox cages, which are, sounds about, uh, you know, is the des description that is about the size of a shoebox. Um, and in the wild, mice and, and rats would, of course, have a much bigger space. They would be able to burrow. They would be living with other uh, animals. And most importantly, they would have the ability to run about and move about as you know freely. It turns out that e even in the wild, laboratory mice will run sort of between four and eight miles a day, these little tiny animals. So if you, the question then becomes, if you're using these kinds of um, animals that have this enforced sedentarism as your research subjects, you can do all kinds of nutritional research on them, but since they're not actually moving around, you don't really know what the impact of that would be in a normal uh, movie, you know, mobile uh, uh, animal body. And so when you're going down and looking at all of the research, what what stands out to you in this process where you say, wow, we're, we're really overlooking this. Uh, it really is exercise and not diet. Wow. There's so many, there are actually so many things. I mean, literally uh, this this issue with the um, laboratory animals, just, it's just super confounding because if you, um, if exercise if, is vitally important to animal health and you're doing nutritional and, uh, you know, obesity and all sorts of uh, disease studies on animals that are being kept immobile, you know, how meaningful are, are the results of you know, much of the research of the last century and this one. 
because none of those animals have been able to move around unless they're in an, in an exercise protocol. So that, that in of itself, I said, wow, you know, maybe we have to throw out all of that because we don't really know what it would be like to, to you know, let's say eat um, uh, an, you know, sea slug extract when you're also active as your, your body is meant to be. So, you know, really each piece of the book has just something that, that makes that case very strongly. Um, you know, the other issue, you know, we could talk about, for example, um, people, the difference between fatness and fitness, which is something people have looked at. And I know um, when we were chatting beforehand, you mentioned, Let's, let's look at that. Yeah. Yeah. Let's look at that. So, um, you know, one of the things that people think is that they have to get slim to be healthy. Um, and But there's been, um, you know, a fair amount of research looking at the issue of fat versus fit. And um, what in one of those was I said in the book, which is a guy named um, Glenn Gaser at the University of Arizona. And what he did is sort of a, is sort of meta study reviewing all sorts of studies and looking at um, the impact of uh, fat of fitness in each BMI category. So that would be from underweight, um, normal weight, overweight, and obese. And what he found was that within each category, the fit people were always much healthier than the un their unfit counterparts. And that from BMI category to BMI category, there's actually not that much difference in the fit people in each group. So the meaning of that is that if you are um, overweight or obese and fit, you can still be healthy. And that's just such a amazing message for a world in which we are focusing on how much weight people need to lose. Well, walk us through how we define fit in that scenario. Okay, that uh, so fit would be, and I'm not sure exactly how it was defined in uh, in this meta study. You can look at that in different ways. The most uh, scientific way is has to do with your um, uh, your the, the maximum amount of oxygen that you can use during exercise. And if you can get up to certain levels, then you are considered fit. Um, other times, people use sort of a shoe-in. They will kind of ask you to record how much uh, exercise you do and whether it's um, moderate or vigorous during the week um, as, a, as a measure for fitness. So essentially, it's looking at cardiovascular fitness. Yes. And so there was, a, if I ever recall, there was like a chart. Right. In the book. Can you just kind of visually walk us through that? I think that was a good way to kind of look at it. Yeah. So that was the chart I was just referring to with the fat versus fit. So there are two. Um, it looked at uh, mortality for overall mortality and cardiovascular mortality. And there were these uh, three different BMI categories, the normal weight, the overweight, and the obese for each one of those. And in within that, um, there was, they looked at fit and unfit people in each category. And it, the fit people always had a much better mortality rate than the unfit people in both overall 
um, deaths and cardiovascular deaths. Interesting. So coming back to the, the, the bigger question, what is it about exercise? You know, what's happening on a physiological, metabolic, uh, molecular, cellular level that is making it so powerful? One of the interesting things is uh, I like to think that people have this idea that when you eat and you have this special diet that there's going to be these molecules just you know right into your cells and do something wonderful. Um, and that's kind of a misconception. And you, you, you can take in whatever kind of molecules you want, but nothing's going to happen in those cells with those molecules unless you exercise. Um, and so uh, what happens when you exercise is that it st stresses your mitochondria, which are um, the parts of your cell that create energy. And to be able to supply the energy to your muscles, the mitochondria have to work at a much higher rate than they do when, um, when you're just kind of sitting around it's up to 50 times and it, it just changes. So you have to imagine all of a sudden you're going from sort of steady state and to an increase where your blood is circulating, uh, you know, four times as fast. Um, your breathing is increasing, and uh, glucose, which is the uh, fuel for your body cells, is going into your cells at a rate that's fifty times faster than normal. And uh, you know, the mitochondria are are, are uh, producing energy, you know, at a rate that again is fifty to hundred times faster. Everything's just vastly speeded up. Um, so those processes, they, for one thing, uh, a really amazing uh, scientific discovery made um, sort of at the turn of the, the 21st century was that that um, exercise itself opens up a second pathway for glucose to get into your cells. Now, um, this is the problem that when you have diabetes is that you can't get glucose into your cells, even though you increase the amount of insulin. Um, so the fact that you can get glucose in without insulin means that you can regulate your blood sugar levels, for example, if you have diabetes, or prevent diabetes because you're getting the, the glucose into your cells. At the metabolic level, what happens is that the the increase in your um, in the mitochondrial fun functioning uh, puts a lot of stress on the cell. Uh, it increases the amount of heat that's there, so um, the the cell has to figure a way, out a way to dump that heat, um, and that in and of itself creates these new molecules. Um, some one has to do with like uh, making speeding up the rate. And the others have to do with uh, re sort of saving um, heat stressed or or stressed molecules, protein molecules, and those molecules uh, then remain in the body at a in a much elevated rate. And then because they have um, anti-inflammatory impacts, they they are then there to like affect. For example, in my case you know, maybe they're affecting my MS inflammation. So you mentioned you became a runner. So I'm curious, what type of exercise 
And how do you think about frequency and duration? You know, what, what is optimal? What is the ultimate exercise diet, if you will? Well, <clears throat> it has to do with what I mentioned. You That process where you're getting um, out of breath and you need to take in more air because your mitochondria are functioning at such a high rate, that's what you want. So um, anytime you get out of breath and your heart rate goes up, that's, that's the sign that you're um, in the zone and you're getting exercise that's going to have these, you know, anti-inflammatory um, sort of pain relieving and mood elevating impacts. If I personally would say you want to have, uh, you know, that kind of exercise for at least 20 minutes a day, and then you can round out your diet with other sorts of things with, uh, you know, in, which all have good impacts as well with, uh, um, you know, building strength, working on balance and uh, so forth. But yeah, at the core, you need aerobic exercise 20 minutes a day. So essentially, it's what people would call zone two training, where you have an elevated heart rate, where it's somewhat difficult to hold a conversation because you're out of breath. And that could be achieved from a fast-paced walk to taking a whole host of stairs to strength training really fast to jumping rope to jogging. You can get there a million different ways, but it's this idea of slightly being out of breath. Absolutely. That's it. And sweating. Sweating's a lovely sign too. Oh, really? Sweating? Oh yeah, because that's the heat. Because one of our, you know, the one of the things be, that re in, increases these molecules in the body is the need to the heat stress, and the need to dissipate that heat. So if you're sweating, that's a sign that um, you're heating up, and and that's good. So I'm assuming you'd be a fa a, fa a fan of of saunas. No. Because you have to think about the process. That's that's really heat at the surface of your body, and it's just trying to to get rid of it. Whereas when you're talking about heat that's coming from muscle cells being worked, that's coming from within your muscle cells, and that's what creates the anti-inflammatory molecules. Got it. Got it. So I, I want to bring it back to the rodents, if you will. You know, and and the the problem with those studies, and that many of the rodents are just sitting around doing nothing and and humans well unfortunately some humans are like that these days but not really a reflection of how most people live their lives but you mentioned studies in the book about cats and bats which i don't really hear about on this show or in our world so can you talk about cat what what you learned from cats and bats yeah okay well cats um you know cats are really kind of our uh, our you know sort of a measure of our own lives because they kind of mimic ours. Um, but what I, I kind of noticed was that a lot of my friends and neighbors have indoor cats, um, which is the recommendation of veterinarians today um, for their own safety. And I, but I did notice that a lot of my friends, indoor cats were super roly-poly. <laughs> um, and my cat, who's an outdoor cat and um, is not, although she, you know, she does chunk up a little in the in the winter, and so I, I kind of started meditating on that and went down down the cat a rabbit hole, so to speak, and I started talking to vets and and then they confirmed that there's you know so much many more. Uh, 
uh, fat, fat indoor cats than, than outdoor cats. And so that kind of suggested to me that the impact, you know, on animals is kind of the same as it is for us. Um, and uh, the, in terms of health, there, again, there's, you know, some, some work that has been done that shows that, that, that cats that, that get, you know, access to the outdoors and can, can exercise enough are healthier as are, as are dogs. Um, bats. Yeah. Bats, cats and bats. Cats and bats are amazing. Um, so, so bats of all the animals in the book are probably the most amazing athletes. Um, it turns out that bats, when they go out to uh, forage for flies or fruit, depending on the kinds of bats they are, they are uh, taking enormous journeys. Like they can be anywhere from sort of eight miles a night, depending on the kind of bat, to 50 miles a night. And so um, the interesting thing, I, I kind of got onto the bats topic because of COVID. Um, at first I sort of, you know, I was like, oh my God, people are going to blame bats because there's that whole thing about the lab. And I was like, oh, they're going to start killing bats. And I said, sort of in my head, I was like, maybe I can show bats are good things. Um, and so I, I started, and but I was also very curious because I said, okay, we're getting this horrible disease from bats, but bats are fine. So what's going on there? Um, so I kind of was looking at that angle. Uh, and I went and I kind of started to study more about bat metabolism. And it turns out that bats have this really unique metabolism um, because of that flight that they're doing, that that motion, you know, flapping their wings, it's it's it consumes a huge amount of energy. And so they have a very um, high metabolism, which is fueled slightly differently than ours. But the interesting thing about their heat, their heat goes up quite high. Um, you know, a couple it, it increases a couple degrees. And so bats have all, you know, this whole system for, for uh, dissipating heat, but they also have really high levels of one of the molecules I was talking about earlier, something called heat shock molecules, uh, heat shock proteins, excuse me. Um, and these are protective, again, against inflammation. And bats have a whole other sets of, of processes that perfect, pr protect against inflammation. Um, but the result is that in uh, in bats in the wild, you can't tell the difference between a 25 year old bat and bats yes live that long sometimes, and a two year old because they don't age. Wow, they don't age, and uh, and they basically stay healthy until the very very end. So that's the secret. Is that the secret of the bats? They're constantly yeah, moving. Yeah, the, I think the secrets of the bats is this: they are endurance athletes to the max. They spend, it, like, I think one of the scientists in the book he says that they're like, you know, butt kicking bouts of exercise every day. It's not something we we'd have to do like four ultra marathons to compete, but it's just an insane amount of of physical activity. And it keeps them, you know, just really their their uh, metabolic and and immune systems are incredible. Another interesting uh, piece of research in the book, the Jackson Laboratory. Laboratory, excuse me. 
I thought that was really interesting. Can you talk about that one? Oh boy, yeah. So um, Jackson Labs uh, was something that uh, came out of sort of the early genetics um, when people were looking for some uh, creatures to do research on, and uh, were so they they began to um, the lab in the 1920s and began to develop these all these different strains of mice, which were, at first, they were um, simply mated with their siblings to create sort of genetically similar individuals. Um, then eventually, nowadays, um, we do that, uh, you know, through genetic manipulation. But um, so the Jackson Lab has developed all these different strains of mice that have been used all around the world in science. Um, and they, but at the same time, they, because they're sort of like the, the gold standard for laboratory animals, um, everything else about their process has also been copied, including how um, they keep their rodents. And how they keep their rodents is in these uh, shoebox cages, which are very small. Um, and they do not have access to a running wheel, which should, so that they could like move around at all during the day. And so that in of itself has created this sort of, as I said before, this sort of um, world where these very sedentary animals are then experimented on. And they are, um, scientists have noticed that they are also these kinds of animals do tend to get obese. They tend to have more lifestyle diseases and so forth. So um, there is that impact on their, on their bodies as well. I come back to this idea that exercise is paramount. Uh, if you have some general understanding of nutrition, if you, if you are eating well to some degree, and I can't help but think of your story around the tobacco industry and the role that the tobacco industry played in the 60s uh, in shaping a view around cholesterol, um, which was possibly inaccurate, uh, <laughs> suffice to say. And I think of where we sit in the world today, and I think we, we know where things ended with, with tobacco and where we stand with tobacco. And I think of the role of pharma. Oh, yes. And I'm not anti-pharma, but, you know, I think pharma is playing a role here. What's, I, I got a big, oh, yes. So let's talk about that. That, yeah, that's, um, I, that's not actually something I've covered, but I definitely, it's in the background. And yeah, the, I think the, um, the pharmaceutical industry, I think, had quite a bit to do with helping to create and define the obesity epidemic with the goal of having a new illness to create medicine for. Yes. <laughs> yes. You know that. <laughs> and I, I, there's um, Catherine Fliegel, who's one of the scientists I, I talk about in the Food Fights chapter, um, has done quite a bit of uh, research on this. I also did it for my um, for something else. And so there's this whole process during the 1990s, really, where um, there was this redefinition 
of things that before had been considered fine and acceptable. Um, one of them was there was a finding uh, by um, the CDC that that there was a, an epidemic of overweight that was causing problems. Now, um, this was, it turns out that, there, that the association with um, cardiovascular disease and death was, was greatly exaggerated. Um, but that sort of was trumpeted and that, and that turned into sort of this clarion call for, for action to be taken. Um, the pharmaceutical industry helped fund, for example, uh, study groups for uh, different uh, organizations, including World Health Organization, where scientists were looking at whether they should, first of all, uh, adopt BMI as a measure of obesity, and then second of all, lower um, the the uh, the the thresholds for obesity and and overweight, which they did. So that that happened in the late 1990s. There was sort of a decision. Okay, let's let's lower the BMI for uh, obesity from, I think it was 27 to 25. And sort of overnight, millions of people became fat. Um, then there's just the idea that rather than looking at other issues, rather than um, working on, you know, uh, uh, for example, physical activity, that we're going to medicate obesity um, out of existence. And um, there was a while this whole process on on medicalization of obesity was happening, and and I also want to mention that um, it it continued during the early two thousands, and then in two thousand and I think it was twelve or thirteen, um, the American Medical Society Association came out and um, endorsed the idea that obesity was a disease. Um, that then, of course, would need to be treated. Yeah, talk about that for a moment. That's an important distinction in this. Once you be, classify as disease, different game. Yes, exactly. And because um, disease, is, disease equals drug. Exactly. Some exactly. Classify so, as disease. They were so yeah. So um, in I think I think it was 2012, um, and this was something that came out. And this is another little tangled thread is the association the of endocrinologists. Now endocrinologists are um, the branch of medicine that deals with hormones. Hormones are very similar to drugs, so there's kind of a lot of overlap. And in fact, the pharmaceutical industry of all the different medical specialties, the endocrinologists receive the most funding from the pharmaceutical industry. So. Um, the interesting thing is that they, I'm probably going to get a lot of hate mail after this. All good. Not, not from our audience. You're, you're preaching. Okay, from endocrinologists for sure. Um, but anyway, so, so they helped push this through and they, so they worked in their own association and then they presented it, um, at the, uh, American Medical Association meeting. And then there was a, the American Medical Association's own committees had considered the issues and recommended against it. And then there was sort of an outcry and sort of they, they forced them to kind of relook at it. And then they passed the motion declaring obesity to be a disease. But until then, it, so once that happened, that really sets up the motion, the wheels so that, yes, this is, wait for it. You can then have uh, insurance and particularly government insurance pay for its treatment. 
And I promise you that this has all come to pass. Just read the New York Times this year where they are saying, oh, yay, we now have some great new drugs to treat obesity. And people are going and they're complaining to their uh, physicians if they're not being allowed to take these obesity medicines, which are covered by insurance. It's such a travesty. Yeah. When they only focused on being healthy, which you can be at any any weight, then they could um, you know, start exercising. The, the cool thing about exercise is the very first time you do it, you're going to have a good impact on your body. You don't need to lose a pound. It's just so concerning on so many levels. And I'll caveat with, I'm not a conspiracy theorist and, and COVID happened. And, uh, and, you know, I think of the, the conversation around vaccines and, and vaccines were important, but, you know, I think we're still learning a lot about that what was missing from the message in 2020 when things were doom and gloom and, gloom and people were losing their lives was completely absent the conversation around nutrition and exercise when we know if you had a if you had a healthy body weight and you had a strong immune system you were a lot more likely to to be okay when you inevitably well now we know inevitably got covid and that com- that conversation was not even a conversation and, and I go back to the why cuz it wasn't in the interest of pharma to some degree. And here we are with obesity. It's scary. Yeah. I mean, I have to say, I mean, I've had all my, my, you know, the, the vaccine, but I have been exposed to COVID. I think I've had COVID, but I haven't had any symptoms of COVID. And there is actually um, been research to show that people who are fitter and people who exercise were better able to resist COVID and, and had better outcomes when they did. Yes. Absolutely. And again, goes back to these anti-inflammatory molecules that we were talking about. So so how do you see this playing out with, you know, obesity is a disease, pharma's got a drug, pharma is I think pharma very won. influential. Yeah. And and, I and, think here, pharma and here won. we are. They, they but but like we can't let them win. No. That's what we're talking about. So the, all those people, I just wish, you know, it, it's so tragic because I think it, the focus on losing weight is just harmful for everyone. It's harmful for, you know, it's harmful for so many different reasons. You know, one of which you're, you're creating this uh, situation in which people are living stigmatized and in shame for their bodies. But when if, if they could just kind of focus on getting out there and, you know, exercising enough every day, they're going to be healthy. They're going to feel better, and and they, we can you know improve outcomes without doing anything else. Instead, because people are focused on losing weight, they are being driven into these um, you know sort of the, this this pharmacological treatment of their of this situation, which you know I'm not going to even I would never call it an illness. So um, it's it's really heartbreaking because a lot of people are it's creating you know a lot of unhappiness and unhealthiness. Just to build off of that, I do think that's such a critical message in that everyone differs with regards to what's healthy in terms of their BMI, depending on their level of cardiovascular fitness, defined as you know this whole host of tests to see you know, I guess your lung capacity to a certain degree, but you know if you are doing that zone two training as we define every day and you're, you're building that, uh, that muscle, if you will, doesn't really matter what size you are to some degree. And we've completely taken, we're not looking at that at all. We're just looking at BMI. Exactly. No, if, I mean, think about it. When you go to the doctor's office, there's no measure for how fit you are. 
Does does your doctor ask? Mike, I do all sorts of crazy work. So I, I do the 28 vials of blood and I get the, the cardiovascular scan. I, I'm the extreme end of, of this, uh, given who I am and my role in my body green and my passion for the space. But but yeah, it's usually you go to a doctor and it's we do blood pressure, cholesterol, which which is becoming meaningless. Exactly. So that so I mean, if there were even you could even do sort of a screening test to find out. My I mean, my doctor knows I run because I tell her. But she doesn't say to me, how many minutes a week do you do vigorous exercise or moderate exercise? In my view, lifestyle uh, is paramount. Uh, Your genes are not your destiny. And exercise plays a significant role. And I want to come back to to food because food food plays a role. Um, We've all heard, let food be thy medicine. Um, In your opinion, how, how far can food take us? Where, where does food fit in, in your, your ranking of lifestyle uh, tools? Thank you for that question. Um, yeah, I, I'm definitely um, advocating that we rewrite that to be, let exercise be thy medicine. <laughs> I hope I've made my case. Um, but again, phys- it's just sort of the actual uh, physiology of it. Nutrition is limited. You eat something, your body breaks it down into component molecules that in the case of fats kind of get broken down a lot and then reassembled. And then those circulate in your bloodstream and yeah, they wash into your cells. Fine. But what creates these new molecules that have um, you know, mood elevating, pain relieving, and anti-inflammatory effects is exercise. And in fact, the, you know, some of the molecules that that uh, a pharmaceutical company will try and invent, it looks to these exercise-induced um, molecules and the pathways in which they act when it's creating new substances for this. It doesn't look to food molecules. So that can't bring us very far. So in terms of, you know, I, I'm the daughter of a statistician, so I'll break it down. I'm going to estimate this. I would say 20% nutrition, 80% physical activity wow for health and then yeah, of course they're sleeping is going you know those things are all all i'm i'm, I'm just doing exercise and physical activity because those do factor in for sure and 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 mental health and sleep are, are 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 super important also affected by exercise so so you also were very intentional with your title eat like a pig because you were being literal in that pigs are omnivores from my understanding yes Yes, that's true. Yeah, so the title has those three meanings. I already talked about the first one. If you eat like a pig, then you better run like a horse. The second level has to do with the animals mentioned in the book. And those two animals are the ones that are most like humans on those two spectrums. So pigs are omnivores. They eat whatever they see, just like us. Um, and they actually have very similar digestive systems and metabolic systems, even similar um, sort of blood levels of, of the different uh, nutrients. And so they're very so they're kind of our model on the eating end. And horses, uh, like us, are the champion long distance runners and sweaters of the animal kingdom. And the fact that they sweat and we sweat is not... Um, a coincidence. It's or it's because sweating is really one of the best ways to uh, dissipate excess heat. 
And that allows us to be these incredible athletes. One final thing is just, I think it's sort of a, a lean in message. You know, I think you should do, if you're going to do something, you should do it to the max. So pigs and horses. <laughs> and, and I want to bring it back to, you know, your journey with MS. And, you know, th there are lots of people with MS. Um, you know, someone we've had on, on the show is a friend, Terry Walls, who I'm sure you're familiar with. The, the, and she has the Walls Protocol, which goes into great deal, great, great detail outlining the, the food, medication, exercise, everything. And what's so interesting is when I first met Terry, God, it was like eight, eight, eight years ago, the medical community, you know, really didn't acknowledge her at all. And, and that seems to have changed. Uh, with regards to MS, what's your take on the medical establishment, if you will, and are we making strides there and acknowledging other things besides pharmaceuticals? I think a little bit. There's been a little bit more attention um, uh, paid to to you know things besides the pharmacological solutions. Um, I will caution that MS MS seems to be sort of a catch-all category because there's so many different types of MS out there and and cases. So it's even hard to say, you know, for with certainty that it's the same disease. Um, and even at the end of my book, I have this other possible autoimmune disease uh, to consider. So uh, you know, I really, I really couldn't say, but I do feel that there's been a little bit more. I certainly have noticed some attention now to uh, 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 MS um, patients who also run and the impacts of that. Um, and but and there's you know been some some more research on the impacts of exercise. Um, as time goes on. So yeah, little baby steps. So you mentioned mental health. And when I think about exercise, specifically running, uh, for so many people, it is a stress reliever. It is meditation and, and motion. And there's that added benefit where one's able to just clear their head from, from any worry they might have. And so I'm curious, for, for you, do you attribute part of the success you've had with running uh, as a tool for self-care? Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I think like many runners, I notice like I'll be, I can get down on a day. I don't go out. I really feel I need that. It helps me to, you know, feel cheerful, um, energetic and positive. And, you know, I talk in the book a little bit about my daughter, my middle daughter, who during the pandemic, who she's an athlete um and she ended up just staying in her room all the time she tacked like blankets over her windows so she wasn't even getting any light and then she went through a really major depression it was very scary um and i remember trying to get her to just go outside and do a little exercise um trying to get her to run and she wouldn't do it but yeah exercise is just so important for mental health how's she doing now better she is doing great. Yeah, she got through that, and and it, but it was a super tough period, as it was for so many kids and grownups. Yeah, there are many unintended consequences of COVID, but I I, I think a lot about children. Um, we were kind of lucky in that our kids were a bit younger. Um, you know, my two year old, well, she's three. She won't really remember it, maybe. And my 
almost like my six-year-old will to some degree, but largely unaffected. But I think about the kids who were older, uh, being at home, not being at school, devices, the explosion of TikTok, uh, all, all of the above. And I think of the mental health epidemic, and I just really feel for for kids. No, there's definitely a mental health epidemic at this point. I mean, just it really uh, the kids are having issues, grown adults are having issues. Um, there aren't enough providers for everyone at this point. You know, we have to get on that too. There's so much noise in our space, uh, in health in general. What, what What's your biggest pet peeve when you, is it, is it the, well, I'll just, I'll stop there. What's your, what's your biggest pet peeve? You know, it's the diet thing. <laughs> it annoys the out of me. I, I get super annoyed by by people who who uh, demonize certain foodstuffs. The sugar police really bug me, you know, making it into this evil thing that, you know, having people going on detoxes um, and, you know, touting different sort of nutritional uh, study every week. I just, I find it, all the noise really, I find it distracting. I think it's, I literally think it's harmful for people. I think that, you know, if people just stopped paying attention to it and they just started to go, you know, go bicycling every day, they would be in so better shape. I, I, I feel that their lives being lost because of this. So it's not just a pet peeve. I'm actually really serious. I think they're doing damage. Yeah. I, I think most people in our space probably, I don't know when I speak of the experts, uh, probably agree on 80% and they find themselves arguing about the 20. And on that note, I would say probably one of my biggest pet peeves is the, 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 the magic silver bullet, if you will, that there's always just this one thing uh, that's going to revolutionize uh, your life or the, the one thing that's going to make you feel better. And, and look, sometimes that does happen in rare circumstances, but I think for the most part, uh, it's alchemy. There are many things, some of them we know, many of them we have no comprehension of. Yeah, definitely. On that note, how have you wrapped your head around your journey with MS and where you are today in your search of, you know, exercise works uh and it and this is what maybe caused it or i don't know what caused it or exercise works and i'm kind of gonna just forget about what walk walk us through your journey and how you've kind of wrapped your head around everything because you've gone through a lot I, in terms of MS, I, I think I'm, I'm stuck where my neurologist left, left me, which is, um, you ran away, would, you ran away from your neurologist. No, no, that was the first, that was the okay. first neurologist. My second neurologist was wonderful. Um, and I had, I was with him for many years and he would, I would say, you know, Dr. Pilgrim, um, you know, he won't, he, should I consider the interferon therapies and blah, blah, blah. and he's like, well, you know, um, maybe, you know, you seem to be doing fine. And he said, he would have said to me, you know, just keep on doing whatever you're doing. <laughs> I'm running. And since it's working, I'm not going to change anything. It's if it, you know, it appears to have had a profound effect on on the course of my illness. And you know, to be clear, 
the percentage of MS uh, sufferers who have no symptoms is about 4%. So I'm in the very lucky minority there. Um, yeah, so so I wanted to say one more thing because I, I, in talking about the AD20, I actually have a little more data that, that wasn't just pulled out of a hat. Um, that came from a study that was done, that was released last summer. Um, I think it was Australian. And they were kind of looking at the impact of diet and uh, exercise and trying to sort of assess a value to it. Um, it ended up getting sort of a lot of press as you can't, you, 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 even if you run, you can't outrun the, the, you know, ill effects of a poor diet. But in fact, what the study showed was that the amount of change that you could affect by exercising was way greater than any improvements to your diet, which were incremental. And so by looking at that, I could, I could actually see, you know, exercises made it improved it five times as much, whereas exercise, whereas diet was only say, uh, you know, two, one time or, or two times. So in looking at that, that data, that was where I kind of came down with the 80, 20. You know, in my journey, I used to say all the time, you can't exercise your way out of a bad diet. Uh, I have somewhat evolved my thinking there and that I still think food is the foundation that you you have to have the basics down uh, to some degree. You know, I don't think we subscribe to the Twinkies all day diet. Uh, so if you can establish that foundation, that baseline, if you will, then the rest may not matter as much. And then you can exercise your way out of a lot. Absolutely. That's, I totally agree. And so enjoy an occasional Twinkie. Yeah. Don't, not Twinkies. Well, Twinkies better options. There's so many better options out there. I, I would say the processed food has gotten so much better in the last few years. There are so many great innovative new companies that have better for you ingredients ranging from the Unreals and the Justins on the peanut butter cup, like Hue chocolate. To, there's just so many better options with processed food. Uh, and they taste good. You're, are you, are you, are you dissing Twinkie? I, I just was never into Twinkies. They they kind of grossed me out. I, I would I'm a chocolate peanut butter guy at heart. And the good news is I, I've you know I have done the experiments where I've one wore the continuous glucose monitors and I'd monitor my blood sugar and it's actually negligible. So like chocolate and peanut butter do nothing for in terms of your which was like oh this is amazing I can eat these things all day if I wanted to negligible. So how much exercise are you doing a day? Because I, I, now I feel like there's a million things I should have said. Oops, it's two more minutes. But Phil, go, go ahead. We have, we have more time if you want. The quick thing is, of course, you um, once you exercise, it increases your metabolism and, and all those effects are lasting. They trail off over the next 24 hours. So if you exercise every day, your body is in this constantly revved up state, which means you can eat all the, you can eat a bunch of peanut butter cups and 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 not impact your glucose. That that is true, but I, I can also eat other things that will impact my blood sugar levels. And I used to do all sorts of fun experiments when I wore that thing, but I don't wear it anymore. Uh, in terms of what I do every day, I'm a huge walker. So I'm always moving. Uh, I have a rule. If it's less than five flights, I take the stairs. Um, 
I do some strength training, but I'm always moving. I have to move. Uh, so I am definitely not sedentary. So I like 10,000 steps a day, easy, always moving. So coming back to, you know, so many interesting studies and anecdotes you referenced during the course of this interview, you know, is there anything that's on the horizon or that, you, that you're excited about? Oh my gosh. See, it's like, I feel like, it, I don't know how we could have spoken for an hour and a half and I still feel like there's so much left out. Well, we, we can go, we can keep going. So yeah, of course, I mentioned it in the last chapter, which is there is this amazing, huge study being done at the National Institutes of Health, the Molecular Transducers of Physical Activity in Humans. It's a multi-institutional project. Um, it was supposed to take uh, five years, but it's been uh, delayed a little by the pandemic. It's being done, there's uh, different components. There's um, laboratory research and there's clinical research on animals and humans. And uh, right before the book was published, I interviewed a couple of the scientists about um, some of the early results on animals. And that was super fascinating. Um, so in what this study is trying to do, I should have mentioned, is actually inventory all of the molecules that are created by physical activity to understand, um, you know, what they're what they're doing, and then of course to figure out, you know, which ones are most beneficial and how we might be able to affect those. Um, so, what they found in the uh, in the work with animals is was two really interesting things. One is that there's actually a sex difference in the impact of physical activity. So um, that's something that that we're going to want to be thinking about, just as we think about different dosages for medications. So what was the sex difference? I did just different different impacts of of the different levels on on male and female bodies. So. It might be less or, you know, you could have a greater impact, say, with um, on the male body than on the female body, and, or you might be have a, a, you could achieve more with, with a less investment of time and, and um, energy. So, um, but, so that was one thing. And the other thing was, and this is super important, that exercise affects every single system of the body. It's not just your your um, muscles, your your skeletal muscles, and your cardiovascular system. As we all know, it's your brain, your cognitive power, um, but it's also things you wouldn't think about, like your gut health and your reproductive system. So they found that the beneficial impacts of exercise were just system wide. Um, so it's just another reason to keep exercising. I love it. Anastasia, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Jason.